Hello listeners and welcome to the Sneaky Art podcast. I'm your host Nishant Jain. I'm taking a step back from the endless cycle of podcast production to well, to take a break, to refuel my creative juices, to recharge my batteries, to gain fresh perspective, etc., etc. <laughs> While there are no new episodes for the next month or so, I am taking this as a chance to share some gems from the past that may or may not have escaped your attention. Even if you have heard them before, I do believe these episodes are worth a second listen. While I'm on vacation, I am experimenting with different audio formats, so no, I'm not taking a complete vacation at all. There are new things I want to do as a podcaster and I'm very excited to try them out. The early results of these experiments will be shared with Sneaky Art Insiders, the super listeners who allow me to do all of this. And I don't mean just to make the show, but also giving me the freedom to take a step back and refresh myself because I feel the need to do so. It is a powerful thing that I am exercising right now, this creative freedom. So I want to thank you, all my insiders, for making this possible. If you would like to support this show and have a backstage pass to new developments as they happen, tap the button in the episode description and become a Sneaky Art Insider. Now, I'm going to get out of my own way. I wish you happy listening and a beautiful rest of your summer. Hello, Roshin, and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm so happy to speak with you today. Thanks so much, Nishant. Likewise. Uh, We're connecting across the Atlantic Ocean. And in order to prepare for this session, to prepare for our conversation, I looked at your profile on your website and I was reading your story, which was so interesting to me. And I wanted to start today's conversation with an, a very pivotal point, it seemed, in your life. And I want to ask you to bring our listeners to this point and to tell me how it felt. So what I want to know is uh, you being in Mauritius for a while and having this book with you, which was Danny Gregory's Everyday Matters. So my question is, uh, what kind of space were you in mentally as an artist and as an illustrator? And how did these two big new things affect you? One, the the book, and two, this tropical landscape of Mauritius that you were in. Well, that is the big question. The, that, that was the moment, the months that changed my life. Um, and... Amazingly, I knew at the time that my life was about to change. So I think maybe sometimes people only know in retrospect that their life changed at a particular moment, but I knew, I knew very strongly. So what happened was, um, my husband is half Mauritian and he has lots of family connections in Mauritius and he'd always wanted to spend some time over there. And he works a job that could, he works, he can work anywhere. He's, he's a computer developer, so he can work anywhere. And I had three, we had three young children at the time. And when he said, when my husband suggested to me that we would go and live abroad for a while in Mauritius, I was just like in a complete panic. You know, I had a natural instinct as a mother. I don't want to take my children out of their safe, secure place. But 
in the end, what persuaded me was the thought that we only have one life and it's not a dress rehearsal. So you've just got to take opportunities when they're presented to you. Um, I knew at the time that Mauritius was a place of opportunity. It's a place where people are open to things and ideas. I knew that, but any more than that, I had no idea. Um, artistically speaking at the time, I had been running, um, an illustrated wedding invitation business and I enjoyed it very much, but I was waiting for my mojo to arrive and I knew that I had some kind of artistic power. And I don't mean by that, that I was some kind of genius or anything. I just knew that there was a power. Um, and I couldn't make it come out. And that was a source of huge frustration to me. I was watching the years and the decades slip past and I'd been waiting for this power to present itself and to manifest itself, but it hadn't done so. And I was thinking, I'm in my forties. This is nuts. When is it going to happen? And I used to lie awake thinking, will I, when will I stop trying to find it? Will I be on my deathbed when I stop trying to find it? And I knew that, yes, I would be that I was never going to stop searching because I, I couldn't, it, it, it was something that was waiting for me and somehow the wait was getting longer and longer. So that's the frame of mind I was in going to Mauritius and it, we arrived from a Irish winter into a Mauritian summer and it was extremely hot and sunny and really, really hot. And I was terrified that my children would burn to a crisp and um, even though my husband's very dark and they have their father's coloring, but still I was, I was very, very worried about the bugs, about everything. We were there for about, um, three weeks when, uh, my birthday fell around and my mum had insisted on packing some birthday presents for me. Um, one of them was Everyday Matters by Danny Gregory. And I opened it up and I was sitting by the pool that were in the house where we were staying. And I was about five or six pages in and I suddenly put the book down on my lap and my kids were messing around by the pool. And I just said out loud, why am I not sketching? And I actually said it out loud, like, like a loony. Um, and I immediately went upstairs to get some of the art materials I brought with me, which was not very many, just some inks and some brushes. And I came down and I just turned around and started drawing the birthday presents that my children had given me. There was a, a Tintin book by Hergé in Creole, in Mauritian Creole, because my son knew that I wanted to learn Creole. And um, it was a mug with the map of Mauritius on it in gold. And there was a fan and a little DVD my daughter had made. So just little birthday presents. And I started to draw them with no purpose in mind other than just capturing their shapes. And I knew in that moment that everything was going to change. I don't know how I knew because I'd been drawing since I was old enough to hold a pencil and I'd always loved art. Um, and the next day I drew the pool. The pool had been a cyclone and the pool was looking pretty raggedy and the pan trees were looking pretty sad and miserable. And as I say, I didn't have any art materials. So it was just an ink and pen sketching sketch. And then I prevailed upon my husband's cousins to see if they could find me some art materials because at the time in Mauritius, it wasn't easy to find art materials. And I had to buy a, a pad of paper from South Africa. So um, I, I got my, my little bits of art stuff and I drew this stuff around the house. And then about 
two or three weeks after that, less than that, about a couple of weeks after that, I decided to go and draw away from the house. I was terrified. I, I experienced that feeling that so many new sketchers have. What's going to happen? Who's going to, are they going to, am I going to be attacked? And I walked out of the house. My heart was beating. When I think about where I go now, it's ridiculous. I walked down the street and I knew so little that I didn't even have a chair, nothing, no stool, nothing, nowhere to sit. So I was walking by the beach, by the shore, and I saw a bench, a concrete bench. And I thought, okay, I'll sit down there. And I began to paint and draw the sea. And there was a lady sweeping the, the edge of the pavement. She was a, a Mauritian lady. She was wearing typical street sweeper uniform, big, big, tall lady. And I thought, oh no, oh no, oh no, she's coming. She's coming. She's going to say something. And she said to me, and I said, yes, she said, you're drawing the sea. And I said, yes, I am. And she said, the sea is beautiful. And that's all she said. She smiled and off she went. And little did I realize that, that that was the general vibe that I was going to discover again and again and again in the coming time, just a gentle vibe and an acknowledgement that this is a beautiful thing that I'm doing, regardless of the outcome. It's a beautiful thing to paint and to draw. And after that, uh, my heart rate began to slow down just a little bit. And then I decided to take it further. And I went to the village next to where we were staying. Um, absolutely not crazy place called Triolet, which is a Hindu, uh, very strongly Hindu village. And um, for a little Irish woman coming from Galway, my jaw was just hanging open the whole time. But I began to paint the market. And there was a guy um, with a samosa stall and he was, he was so kind. He made sure nobody would park in front of me. He insisted that I eat some of his samosas. And I was saying, no, 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 because I was worried about food poisoning. And he said to me, uh, what's the matter? You, 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 don't, you don't think my wife's samosas are any good? And I said, oh, okay, I'll have some. And the next day I went back to finish my sketch and I said, you tricked me. You knew how good your samosas were. You knew I'd be back. And that was quite funny because we became good friends um, over the time. And then I introduced my husband to him to get some samosas one day. And he said to my husband, you must protect your wife. Your wife has a gift from God. And I was just laughing so much. My husband was like, oh. <laughs> so it, it, it turned into this wonderful adventure where my husband would stay at home. He was doing his computer work. And I would get into our little hire car and just drive everywhere in this tiny island by myself because it's, it's a very safe place. People are very, very welcoming, very, very relaxed. And of course, incredibly beautiful. And, um, I, and at the same time, I discovered the fun of writing, um, telling stories about what I'd seen. And that was very exhilarating. It was like, uh, discovering a new toy. Um, so that, that's how I spent the next six months. That was such a lovely story, Roshin. Uh, and the part that really interested me already is that uh, as your first few experiences as an urban sketcher, you already start to do these things which are, you know, which are uh, advertised almost as the the best aspects of urban sketching. And they're so real. The fact that you immediately start to make connections with the place you're in. Yep. The fact that people are immediately interested in your art. And I completely relate to how you felt with that woman coming towards you and that initial hesitation about 
am I doing something wrong? <laughs> am I supposed to not be, is this okay to do? This was something that I was consumed by when I first started to just walk in the streets and sketch. And this was in Chicago. I was just absolutely overwhelmed by ideas of trespassing in some way. And everything, all the experiences I've had have been so positive and they've taught me otherwise. Uh, tell me more about the kind of things then that you're, you're in a fresh place. You're in a place that you've never seen. So what were the kind of things that you were then attracted to drawing as you got into this, this whole thing of being an urban sketcher? Well, at that time, I didn't know about urban sketching because it was only after my return to Ireland that I understood about the concept of urban sketching. I'll explain why in a little bit. But at that time, I was just sketching. It was drawing for pure drawing's sake. And I was, it was like falling in love. I was dizzy. I was dizzy with this feeling. And bear in mind, I had been drawing forever. Always. I was always the girl who was asked to do other people's drawings. I had been working professionally since I was 14 as a, as a, as a painter, as an artist. I'd done millions of things. But this was so different. This was real living art. It was much more than art. It was experiencing, experiencing, diving into the deep end and being surrounded with being, just being in color and line. And I, more and more, I found that I, because I'm, I'm quite open, I suppose, and I had an open aspect perhaps, but, and also I'm a mom. So when I meet sort of children, the children would treat me like a mom, um, you know, um, stop being in that lady's way. That lady can't see. <laughs> or people would tell me about their children or Women would talk to me about their marriages. So I was, I had a really special position as somebody that people would talk to. I, they were attracted to me because I was this very pink, red-haired Irish woman. Um, so I was no threat. So, so in that way, I was able to, to capture the stories. They were just handed to me. But what I decided to do, I started to give myself a theme. I decided I would try and capture something of the religious, um, religious premises of all the different religions that we find in Mauritius. So we had the Tamil, we had the Tamil temples, we had the Hindu temples, we had the mosque. Um, the Buddhist religion didn't have buildings, but they had a few statues. There was a couple of churches that were Christian. Um, and I can't think of any others, but the Tamil ones were just crazy. They were just crazy. I mean, even now, I think I'd be terrified to try and draw one of the temples with all the, 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 the figures and the gods in them. The Hindu ones are a little bit easier. The man who ran the samosa stall, Nitin, it turned out his brother was the manager of the local Hindu temple. So I had a personal invitation to come and draw in the Hindu temple. And it was wonderful. Everything was wonderful. Um, so I kind of had a, a scene. I also wanted to... Um, I, I wanted to tell stories, but I, I was only discovering for the first time that the stories would just fall into my lap. I didn't, I didn't yet know because I was brand new. I didn't yet know that all I had to do was turn up and that people would talk to me. And I, ha I was a little bit nervous of that too. Um, and I was nervous of men, uh, men who had a lot of time on their hands. Um, I had a system where I would wear a huge sun hat, dark sunglasses and headphones. And then with the sunglasses, they couldn't see if I was looking at them to see if they're okay. 
So I had a system where I would look at their feet because I was quite close to the ground on my little stool. And if the feet were well kept, if their feet were good, <laughs> then they might be okay. And I used to say that. And then one, one man said to me a few years ago, he said, you know what? Some, some of us men have got very bad feet, but we're okay. <laughs> so I felt really bad. <laughs> so after that, I didn't talk about people's feet as a measure of whether they were okay or not. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I, I, I had to let go of my nerves because I realized very quickly that people were lovely. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you on so many counts. I used to be really, I, I feel like I still am. And the moniker of sneaky art I gave myself was because of how nervous I was about doing this in public spots. And I wanted to be inconspicuous so that nobody would approach me, so that nobody would come up to me and ask me what I'm doing. Even though I wanted to draw in the busiest of locations, I'm attracted towards human activity and I want to be in that throng and a lot of things happening, a lot of noise and chaos but I don't want to be seen. So <laughs> it's always about balancing these two things. And then I also come up with these arbitrary filtering techniques. Who do I speak to? Who do I not? And decide quickly based on the corner of my eye, what kind of impression I get. And of course, they're not, uh, you know, that's not a that's not a systematic way of eliminating who you're going to speak with. It doesn't mean anything at all, but it was just something I needed to do for my peace of mind just to know that I'm doing this with some kind of sense around it, even if it doesn't really work. Um, I'm also very curious to hear how, how this, uh, this, in, this change was sparked by a book. Can you tell me how, how, does, how does somebody's work? And I believe it's not a book about how to draw. It's a book about with, with drawings in it. So how does something like that, someone else's story, how does that bring that kind of influence? A very good question. I never really thought about that before. I think in the book that Danny has experienced uh, a, a grave life difficulty and he needs something to help him take his mind off things to, as a distraction. And he says, I think, it, I could be wrong in my memory. I think he tries pottery. He tries learning Korean, but they don't stick. And he had drawn a lot as in his job as an advertising executive. Or, or copywriter, I'm not sure. And he, he, he'd always meant to take up drawing. He'd always meant to do more drawing. He doesn't, he talks a little bit about just the act of putting the pen over the page. But I think all he did was nudge me. I think that's really all he does. It's not that I looked at his words and said, wow, his life became okay because he was drawing. It wasn't anything as concrete as that. And it wasn't, oh my goodness, his drawings are so beautiful. Let me see if I can be able to draw like that. It was nothing like that. It was just a nudge. And it was a door waiting to be pushed open because it was already a part of my life. Um, and, and by the way, the mojo that I'd been so desperately searching for, it didn't arrive overnight, far from it. But at least I knew that it was on the way. I knew in glimpses, sometimes I would draw something and I would get a glimpse of the thing that I knew I could do. Um, I had been brought up, you were talking about it with, with Matt in one of your recent podcasts. I was brought up on Air J, um, and I had fallen in love with that style, the lean Claire and that way of making an expression just with two dots for eyes. And I've always drawn like that. And people say to me now, how can you convey the entire personality and emotion with two dots? I don't know. I don't know. 
blame Hergé. I don't know. But, um, but I could see in little tiny glimpses the, the, the power that I mentioned earlier, the power. And I know it sounds like a big word. It's, it's not really, I don't mean the power in that sense. Just that I knew there was a source. There was a source. And I, I needed to find the source, the Holy Grail. And that Holy Grail could only come from me. There was absolutely no point looking for it for somewhere. Of course, now I know it's just my voice. It's just, we all have a voice. It's just a question of digging it, digging it out. Um, and I, I had been so conscious that my voice, my mojo hadn't arrived. And I was awful in tears over it. I was in despair because I knew that this was going to be my life. But here I was in my 40s and it hadn't arrived. When was it going to arrive? Was I going to get hit by a bus before it arrived? Because I knew there's no justice in life. And then I began to think of all the people uh, I'm a little bit inclined to melancholy, I suppose, or used to be. And I began to think of all the people, for example, who died in the Holocaust. How many of them never got a chance? Yeah. It reminds me also of uh, an artist I discovered just a few years ago, Egon Schiele. And he died uh, during the Spanish flu. And he was in his 20s when he died. And he still produced so much work. But we never got to see his work beyond, let's say, the first evolution that he reached as an artist. And he could have been so much more if he'd lived till his 40s and 50s. And we'll never know what went on in his mind, how he might have felt exactly like that. I, I completely empathize with the melancholy around it because I've also felt for the longest time that I'm uniquely uh, ill-fortuned. And things always somehow conspire to happen at just the wrong time for me. And also this this struggle, like let's follow this struggle of finding that mojo because we all go through it. Like for the longest time, for so many years, I've always wanted to draw. I've always been drawing myself. And I've always thought that I can only draw when I'm copying something and I don't have my own way of drawing and I'm never, ever, ever going to find it. I drew a stick figure comic for the longest time and it was on the internet and I'd put it out once a week. and that's easy to draw, but it still didn't feel like my style. And I was always looking for it. And how you describe this thing of knowing that it's not that you want to do something else instead. You know that this is what you want to do, but you're just not able to merge those two things of what you want and what it should be like. And those two things have to meet somewhere for it to become the style that you are finally at peace with. Until it happens, you still don't know when it's going to happen. All you can do is keep looking for it and keep looking for it. Yeah, but you said it there, until it happens, you don't know. And when it does happen, you do know. It's very simple. And in my struggle to find out, I wanted to know, and I did find out what the answer was. I did find out the secret, and it's no secret, and I'll tell you what it is. When I was trying to find out the secret behind Hergé's brilliance, his genius, I decided I would find out by reading all his biographies. So I read all the biographies I could, every single one, every single one. And I, I, I thought, okay, they haven't told us his secret, but I did find out two things that stayed with me. One was that he was not much of a drawer when he started. His, his land of the Soviets, it, it's, you know, collector's item, wonderful, and I'll be slaughtered for saying it, but it's not that great. The drawing is pretty shaky. And that was one thing I learned. So I realized, okay, he got good. He got good. Of course, I also discovered that he had a huge team. You don't know that by looking at the name on the cover. 
But the other thing I noticed, I discovered was that he had had to produce a comic strip for Le Petit Vantiem. Every single Friday, it had to be ready, whether he had the mojo or whether he didn't. Whether the voice came to him, whether he didn't, he had to produce that comic every single Friday for 10 years. And I began to notice when I did the wedding, the wedding illustration, where I had to draw so many brides, it was all very hand illustration. I had to draw so many brides, so many redos, so many hotels and so many churches and so many departure scenes going up in air balloons or going away in a racing car. And my own handwriting began, began to emerge. It began to emerge. It was only after I went to Mauritius, that was after my last job, really, as a, as a wedding illustrator, that, and I began to draw so much. And now looking back, it's easy to look back and see the style begin to emerge. And I realized then that I was beginning to find my style. However, the sharing within the urban sketching community is responsible to a large degree for me having found my style. Something as simple as finding the right tools that suit you as a person. So again, you were talking with Matt about the food pen. That made a huge difference to me. It made a huge difference to me. Um, I owned one for a good year before I started taking it for a walk, but I would not use anything else now. Um, it just, it really, really suits my particular line and it accelerated my, it accelerated the direction I was going anyway. Yeah. And that's so true as we take so much inspiration and courage just from being in a community and watching other people do the things they do. Sometimes I feel like a lot of ideas occur to me, but I don't necessarily give them credence until I see them validated by an artist I admire. So this happened with the food ape and I thought it was a good idea, but I never thought it would be something for me until I saw somebody use it in person. And then I thought, wow, this is so quick. Maybe I can do it because I'm always attracted to doing things quickly and doing the drawing once. I have uh, this great, uh, very subliminal aversion towards working on something over layers and layers and layers. I want to produce the thing in one session if I can do that. And the Fude pen was letting me do this thing, which I did not think any pen could allow. And once I started using it, I was just hooked. But it took that moment of somebody giving me the permission to use it, somebody giving me the permission to think that you can do this with this. Yeah, and it does. And that's community yeah. is for. It does. It's, it's amazing. In my case, it was Inma Serrano from Southern Spain. Um, she and I, she, we had run a workshop together along with Miguel Herranz back in, I think it was 17, might have been, yeah, 17, 2017. And she always used a foodie pen. And I owned one, as I say, for a year, but it just sat there on my desk. And she was the one who really, really pushed me to start using it. Um, she also pushed me to do other things that didn't suit me at all. Um, and was saying, that's the best work you've ever done. I'm thinking, it's awful. <laughs> but that was one thing that she did that really stuck with me, the, the foodie pen. And now I have maybe, I don't know, I'm looking at my pile of foodie pens. I must have 14 of them, all different colored inks. Well, because you see, like you, I, 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 don't, I want to do it as the minimum amount of time possible because there's a lot of lines. So you've got to minimize the time for each line. So because I have different colored inks in them, I can do my grass and green, do, 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 and I can do my, you know, I don't know, shadows in blue, all done. And the stop sign is just done in red. No, I don't outline it first. 
So for me, I really, really enjoy having lots of different colors um, and just the one type of pen. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's let's go to these early interests. You mentioned Hergé, so I want to pick on those kind of things. Tell me a little bit about uh, your early interest in art and the kind of illustration that attracted you towards drawing or being just making art. Uh, did And also, I'm curious to see how this then led to you getting an education in the subject. So could you just trace this whole backstory for me? Um, my mom and dad were amazing, uh, are amazing. And they, um, they brought us to museums and galleries as when we were little children and I was brought to the National Gallery of Ireland and I'm not sure if there had been a Bruegel exhibition or do we possess a Bruegel? I don't know. But anyway, there was a poster of a Bruegel peasant wedding for sale in the shop and I just couldn't take my eyes off it. And my mum my bought it for me and she put it up on my bedroom wall and I was seven. I was seven years old and I just looked at that poster, which seemed vast. It was probably about an A1, but it seemed vast. And I just went to sleep every night looking at it. Um, and as a little child, when your brain is that young and you're only a little baby, you, you, there isn't anything else crowding out your mind except what you're looking at. So I absorbed these lines so much. And you can picture Bruegel in your mind. It's exactly the style I draw now. Very strong lines, very simple colors, strong flat colors. And then around the same time, we started reading Asterix and Obelix and Hergé. Um, and I was obsessed with capturing, there was a very beautiful girl in the Asterix books. Somebody will remember her name. She was stunning. Obelix falls in love with her. She's got long, long blonde hair. And yeah, I can picture her right now. She's weeping and, it, and Obelix falls in love and he's, he just, he's in bits. He's so in love. And then he sees her weeping. And when he discovers she's weeping because her, her fiance has been sent to war, his heart just smashes in smithereens. But the way they had drawn this beauty, I was overwhelmed by the beauty of this girl and that made me very open to how, what you could do with the pen even though I didn't know I didn't even identify it as the pen and then as time went on and I adored all the asterisk books I began to notice that well I began to look at it as a more refined eye and I noticed that you could suggest weight underneath and the, the shady side of an arm just with one thicker line um and I began to notice the quality of the line. And I wondered, of course, I was in Ireland. Nobody was going to tell me, oh, that's a dip pen. Nobody knew. We don't have an art tradition in Ireland. We have music and we have literature, but we don't have art. So nobody could tell me. So I was in the dark completely. And there weren't any books that would say how to get a really expressive line in the uh, Gossinian Erderzo way. I mean, that just, you know, they're there now, but they weren't there then. Um, and of course, at the same time, in tandem with that was, was Tintin. And so Tintin, so it was Hergé, Uderzo, and Bruegel. They were my three influences. And I, I, I just, there was, there was a quintessence to the line that I just wanted to own. So I drew obsessively. Um, every now and then I would see a hint in one of my drawings of something beautiful. And I remember once drawing a little man in a funny suit at school. I must have been 14 or 15. And I, I cut him out. And I carried him with me in my pocket all day long. I just loved it all day long. I mean, it's ridiculous. But I was just searching all the time for this, 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 I don't know, special, special, as I say, holy grail. I was always looking for it. So you can imagine how 
when I, when I discovered it, after I discovered urban sketching, for me, it was like, I can die happy now. I can die happy now. And I can, I can, because I have it. I have what I was looking for. I don't want to die. I have a family to look after. I'm very happy with my life. I quite like being alive, but the search is over. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a beautiful thing because now I can just enjoy it without constantly searching, searching, searching. So, so yeah, happy days. Yeah. So how did the, uh, the education in illustration and then the discovery of urban sketching, I'm cute and I'm an untrained artist. I'm self-taught in one sense, but of course, none of us are really self-taught. We all learn from looking at other things and trying to copy other things. And I grew up with the Asterix and Obelix comics as well. And I would redraw all the figures and just be mesmerized by the kind of thing that you're mentioning this, how the line width can define so much and give so much information. Suddenly just, it's just one stroke. And I would try to imitate that stroke myself, just try to get a thicker line under this. And what does it mean? What can it say? What does it say about the arm? What does it say about the torso of a character? Yeah. And the expressions of like, say, just the outrage on Asterix's face or vital statistics is uh, like his naive expressions of just, just being happy all the time, the way he was. And I would try to see how easy it was to change from one to the other with just a stroke. And like you mentioned, even about Hergé's eyes, just uh, one dot for the eye being able to say so much. It's so interesting to me the way comics do that because it feels like they let you put in a part of yourself in them by being, by withholding a certain amount of information. They allow you to put yourself in those pages and to put in the mood and to put in the other details. And in that way, I think that's how we love those characters. They're not fully anatomically or precisely sketched out for us. And that lets us almost participate in a sense with the art. I would take the completely the opposite uh, viewpoint. I think that they have captured the essence of the emotion and the character and anybody can see it and recognize it. And I remember with one of my brothers many years ago, he was still a young teenager at the time. And we, he, he asked me how I did that thing with the eyes. And I said, look, let me show you. So we both drew little faces on a piece of scrap paper on the kitchen table. And I showed him over and over again, this two dots, a nose, a mouth, two dots, a nose, a mouth. And he was, no, no, I haven't got it. I haven't got it. Somehow I knew, and it's because there is a sweet spot. There is a sweet spot that really, those people who have channeled expression to an absolutely masterful extent, we just instinctively know where it is. And like you, well, I mean, I didn't have any training in illustration. So like you, I'm, I train myself by copying. And that's what I encourage my students to do. I say, please don't go to photographs. Do copy painters. They've already done the process. They've already analyzed the challenges and they have distilled it. So by all means, go to them. But just don't do yourself a favor. Stay away from the photos. And a, a fellow artist friend of mine, we both were talking about why we don't like photos. And he's just said very simply, there just isn't enough information. So you can't see properly. It'll be flattened. There'll be parallax. The colors are all wrong. The light is all wrong. But much more than that, the, um, the pressures that make you step outside your own difficulties as an artist, they're absent. 
And so you tend to tie yourself in knots when you when you're sitting in the comfort of your home and you're trying to copy from a food from a photo. The 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 the, um, the the immediacy of is it going to rain? Am I going to lose the light? Is that car going to drive away? Is that person going to move? All those pressures conspire to stop it. You get over yourself. In other words, you have no choice but to get over yourself really fast. And the ability that you have, which is in everybody, whether they realize it or not, I know a lot of people insist they can't draw, but if they can write, they can draw. Simple as that. If you can make a shape with your pen, you can draw. You can sign your name, you can draw. So, so, so those pressures are absent and you tend to tie yourself in knots. And I, 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 I would love to say it's a theory, but it's something born out, not just in my own thing, even though I don't really use photographs at all now, but people say to me all the time, they say to me all the time that how they get, they get tied up and they start getting fiddly with the photos. So why draw from other people's paintings? What I'm trying to do when I encourage people to draw from other people's paintings, I want them to draw them as exactly as possible. What I'm trying to do is encourage them to become really good at observation and to estimate distances between lines and between points to such a fine degree that when they're faced with this similar scene or whatever it is in life, they have become so good at estimating that line is a third from that line and a quarter from that one that they'll be able to copy more perfectly from life. And all I do when I draw from observation, albeit very, very fast, all I do is copy. That's all I do. It's not rocket science. I'm just copying what I see. And I taught myself to draw, not just obviously the early days was copying. I never copied Bruegel for some reason, but I certainly did copy Asterix and I did certainly copy Tintin. And then as I got into my teens, I discovered the work of the Ukiyoe, the Japanese, the floating world, the woodblock prints from the 17th and 18th centuries. And I churned those out. I churned them out because they had a strong aesthetic and I realized that I could frame them and put them on my wall and they looked very beautiful. But I was always trying to make them as perfectly, as perfect reproductions of what I was copying as, as I possibly could. And my eye became fine-tuned to the distance between the corner of an eye and the side of her face compared to the length of her eye, for example. Or had I made her hair too tall or had I made her... Her, her hairpins stick out too much or was the angle slightly wrong? So I became very, very, very fine, very sensitive to getting my lines exactly right. I had no idea naturally that this would come in useful as a sketcher, but that's what I was trying to do. If you master your craft, you, if you can do those observations within a split second, and if you can get them absolutely perfect, your voice will follow. You have to master it first, master the perfect drawing, and then your voice will follow. In other words, you take away the impediments to your voice. The, for example, if you're making an incredible meal and you're so fluent with chopping onions, you're so, you know exactly what temperature to start frying your meat, all this stuff, none of that gets in the way of your wonderful creation, your ideas that you have for this wonderful gourmet meal. You've eliminated all those roadblocks. So I have eliminated, I hope, a lot of the roadblocks that might stop me making exactly what I want to do. I no longer wonder, can't draw perspective. Oh God, I would have loved to have drawn that amazing building with that beautiful light coming down, but I can't draw perspective. Gone, it's gone. It's just not relevant. It's just not an issue. Because I've, I've spent a lot of time 
practicing. It's just that simple word, practice. That's all. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. I always tell people that, I mean, there's no shortcut in doing this. You simply have to put in the time and you have to solve all of those different problems. So if you're interested in drawing cityscapes, you have you have to put in the time to get things wrong for a long time. Get a lot of sketches that yeah. just don't do it. Have a sketchbook full of bad drawings and maybe two or three sketchbooks full of bad drawings. But that's until you reach the point where it becomes natural to you, where it starts to flow and you're able to do these things. So I like that idea that uh, from uh, trying to copy someone else's painting, you learn to solve a lot of problems the way they have solved them. And then those problems are, you, you, you imbibe one, one solution. And maybe if you copy another artist and another artist, you draw sunsets made by 10 different artists, then you will have imbibed a lot of different solutions to this one problem. I, I wish I had. I wish I had. I, 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 I'm afraid I, I only concentrated on um, the Japanese that I mentioned and the other art that I talked about. I, 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 didn't, I didn't try any others. And I, I think I, I could have benefited because you just mentioned sunset. I can't do sunsets because I've never tried. I can't do sunsets. I forgot about that. That's my admission. Can't do sunsets. But um, maybe one day I'll learn. Maybe I should go to the work of, I don't know, Turner or, um, I don't know. Uh, I was looking at Will Freeborn. He's an incredible Scottish artist. And he did this winter light coming through some trees. And my goodness, if the man didn't capture exactly what it was like to see pale wintry life through trees. So I zoomed up on his little Facebook picture. I was like, what has he done? What has he done with those branches? And it was much, much clearer for me to see how he had solved it as an artist than to look at the same picture as a photograph. I wouldn't have learned anything uh, for lots of reasons, for lots of reasons. But Will, he draws in a pencil for the most part, as far as I can tell. And he had done this really clever thing with his branches around the wintry sun where he'd made them really pale. And it just worked so well. And I tell him, I mean, I say, just, geez, well, well, you just you've knocked it out of the park with that one, you know. And I'm in awe, you know, I really am. I'm in awe. And, um, and it's so exciting to follow artists that continue to inspire because it doesn't matter what level you're at, there's always someone who's, who's got channeled a certain beauty that they've seen in their own genius way. And such a privilege to be able to, to see all this incredible work on social media. Yeah, and through our urban sketching community, we are able to see so many artists that we follow over the years and everyone is evolving in different ways and everyone is chasing different inspirations and different goals that they have in mind. And we get to see their evolution. Sometimes you're not even a good uh, assessor of your own evolution and you can't spot when you changed to doing something other than what you were doing before. But somebody who's looking at your art and only at your finished pieces that you shared, they are able to see this. And so you might influence someone in a way that you didn't anticipate because they watch the progression of your style over time. Who are some, who are some urban sketchers who've, who've, uh, who's, whose work has inspired you in some way, maybe brought about some changes in your own work? Yeah, that's a huge, that's a wonderful question. Um, my big one at the beginning was Marina Krichanik. I just was blown away by her, her crazy. She's got a wonderful version of crazy. She just does nuts stuff, crazy. And it's so full of life. Um, she sketches people. And of course, you know, can't go wrong with sketching people, but she's just incredible. She's just incredible. And I saw 
the way she had channeled her mojo and I wanted some of that. So she was one of them. Don Colley, uh, his work is just so exquisite. It's just beautiful. And his, his mastery, his mastery of observation is like, what? I do that. Um, then there was Inma Serrano and her beautiful, crazy hot, and I'm going to say Spanish style because, you know, that is a thing that I've noticed in Spain. I've funny, I said it to a Spanish, a wonderful illustrator recently. I said, uh, have you, you know, and what do you think about the way that this, this, there's a Spanish style? You know, it's really hot colors and, you know, very illustrative. Like, what on earth are you talking about? And it's just like what you said. He couldn't see it. He couldn't see it. You know, he's quite inside it and he couldn't see it. Um, who else would I just adore as an urban sketcher? Uh, you see, you change over the years. Um, at, at Will, of course, I mentioned Will Freeborn. His work is exquisite. Um, oh, there's a woman I've just discovered, Nicola Meyer Reimer, who was one of the contributors to my second book. Her work is in Rick. It's just amazing. Oh my God. Her people, uh, they're just so full of expression and I, I, as Nicola knows, I, I, I set aside the first page of my book for a sketch of hers because I wanted to honor her by showing you're on the first page, not me, you, um, because her work is just exquisite. So, um, I'm sure I'll have missed out so many names. I'm trying to think of them. Um, yeah, those are a few names that made a big, big impression at the beginning. And I'd be constantly sharing work with my sister. My sister's a painter as well. So, um, yeah, I would be constantly, the two of us would back and forth. Look at this person. Look at this person. <laughs> While you're sketching in Mauritius, uh, you're in holiday mode. You're in a new part of the world. So, you know, wherever you turn, there's something new to discover. When you came back home, how did, uh, like, how did this newfound, uh, interest in urban sketching or drawing, uh, from observation, going out to explore things, how did this manifest in a place that you know for so long and, you know? The colors and the sights are so familiar to you. Well, it was very sad because we came home in June and that's supposed to be the start of the Irish summer, but it was so cold. And even though we'd left winter in Mauritius, we came back to summer in Ireland. It was so cold. I, I, had, I was crying every day and I didn't want to leave Mauritius. And every for the first week after home, I just started crying. And my husband said, what are you doing? I just don't want to come home. I don't like it here. So I was so cold and I suffer with a, a circulation problem. So I'm cold anyway, all the time. So it was, I was, I, I came from the tropics to the cold and that wasn't good, but I had to pick up where I left off. And I noticed a big difference that I was really surprised to see. Irish people didn't stop and talk to me the way Mauritian people did. Um, it could have been because I was obviously a foreigner. I don't know in Mauritius, but once I started putting color on, then people started talking. So I realized that color had a magic power um, that I wouldn't have, I, I wanted to shake them and say, don't you see my line? What's wrong with you? But they didn't see my line, nor did they care. So it was only when I put on color, I was like, oh, you're drawing a picture. But I did notice that people were very friendly once they did get engaged. So they would bring me out a table with a cup of tea and some scones and some biscuits. So that was lovely. That was lovely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, I had been to university in my own town before Mauritius, before family came along. So it was like two different experiences. I never thought about drawing when I was in university. I did in, for my friends just to make us, to make each other laugh. And I, I sold a few paintings in galleries 
but it wasn't part of my daily life by any means at all. I was studying science in university. So, um, so yeah, discovering my, my town as an, as a sketcher was a wonderful experience. And that's so interesting what you mentioned about the colors. I was talking to uh, Marek before and he was telling me how uh, he used to sell art uh, by the street side while he was a student and he would find uh, the people who were most interested in buying his art often were tourists in that part. He was in Italy and so there's a lot of tourists and those are the people who would be the most likely customers of his art. And he'd spotted how people from different parts of the world are drawn to different kinds of art and find appreciation in different styles. So there are some parts of the world where they appreciate a tourist from some part of the world who appreciate the line work, some who appreciate monotones, some who appreciate greys and others who like the vivid colours. Yeah, it's fascinating. I also noticed that um, I was sitting beside um, a Belgian-Portuguese sketcher in uh, Porto um, back in 18 in the, in the symposium. We were on the street sketching side by side. And he was drawing this massive architectural vista, very intricate, just line. And I was doing beautiful hot colours everywhere. And the men wanted to stop and talk to him and the women and children stopped to talk to me. I mean, how interesting is that? Yeah. Well, that could have been because he was a man and I was a woman. So it's hard to say. <laughs> no, I feel like there's a, there's a style thing here. And there's a different kind of like appreciation for different aspects of art and appreciation for different kinds of expression also that, that exists over there. Some people find it easier to appreciate something because they can see how much literal time or hard work went into it in terms of just the details. While some people might appreciate something that has that flair to it, which irrespective of it taking two seconds or 20 minutes, it's still got this element of magic to it, which colors or just the stroke of a brush can bring. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's really interesting how uh, I'm not attracted at all to virtuosity. I just not at all. Uh, I'm not interested in complexity. I want at this particular stage, um, I suppose what attracts me, I suppose beauty above all. Something that I find that knocks me away, blows me away just because it's beautiful. Um, yeah, that, that it, rather than content, it would be the look of it. Um, yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about once, now that you're back in Galway, tell me about the way that you then uh, tried to, I, I read that you tried to, you formed your own urban sketching community. You founded a chapter. I'm curious about this because, you know, a lot of people who live in, and I assume Galway is not like a very big city, is it? No. People who live in small, uh, small towns and in these kinds of parts of the world, often just being able to reach out to others who are interested in their hobbies is such a big deal. And a lot of people hesitate to do that. So today, for example, we have urban sketchers who are connecting on the internet with urban sketchers in other parts of the world, but maybe they don't have anybody in their physical proximity that they would sketch with. So it's very interesting to me that someone founds a chapter. Uh, tell me about that process. How did it occur to you? How did you go about doing it? Um, I had, I thought it'd be a good idea. Um, I didn't realize that really you're better off doing it with a couple of co-founders, but of course the urban sketchers suggest you do because they know that it takes more than one person. But I kind of glossed over that bit and I contacted Gabby and said, hey, I want to start a chapter in Galway. And he said, look, you have to have three to, to, to start off. So um, I was at a Dr. Sketchy's uh, meetup with uh, some guys and I talked to one of them, Donal, and uh, Donal Fanley's a lovely, lovely guy, Galway, and 
And I said, listen, I was thinking of starting up a chapter in Galway. Will you come on board with, with me? And he said, I was just thinking the same thing. I'd love to. So Donald's amazing. He's super friendly. He's the sort of person who his ego just is totally takes the back seat. He goes around to everybody in the group and asks them how they're getting on and, you know, what kind of day they're having. He's just a really great guy. And then the other one was called Jay. Jay Penn. Jay's an Australian. And we really enjoyed drawing together for a couple of years. That was back in 2014. And we, we would draw together and we would have a group together. But the two guys both had different interests. Uh, Donald had run, ran a drawing group of his own. And I think Jay uh, was just very, very busy in general. And I had young kids at the time. My eldest was 14 and my youngest was about, I don't know, nine or 10. And I just found that every time Sunday came around, I had to drive one of the kids somewhere. Um, so it began to peter out a little bit. And then we picked it up again with um, a couple of different people. Uh, it, well, I kind of did it by myself for a couple of years. And then there was a couple of really amazing people within the group. And I asked them would they, you know, take over from what I was doing because I just wasn't putting the, I wasn't putting the time and the effort that was required. You have to be very sociable and you have to be quite selfless. And uh, well, it, I don't know about have to be, but it certainly helps if you're, if you're quite committed to the group. And we had a lovely friendship going. Um, we still do. Um, COVID meant that we couldn't get together last year. Um, and I, I don't know what's going to happen this year. And of course, our weather is so changeable in Galway. The one thing it has to be is dry. It's a small town. We don't have many public buildings to go into when it's raining and to keep warm and dry. That's always an issue. Um, we can go into pubs and that's fine, but the pubs are very small. You can't be together a lot of the time. So, but look, these are all small little, these are small details. We, they're all, they're all easy to overcome. Yeah. I feel like, you know, just what you opened with the, the fact that you wanted to do it, I think that should supersede a lot of the concerns that we, you know, we have to approach a lot of these interests with a certain degree of, well, a mix of ignorance and naivety. Like knowing too much about the obstacles ahead can be so discouraging. And 100%, you're yeah. always in a better position to face those obstacles if you're already doing that thing anyway. And you never know what allies you might find if you find that it's difficult to run it alone by yourself. It's only by the act of running it do you find other people who might be able to take over and might be able to assist or something like that. So True. It's, yeah. it's such an important thing to just do things that because we want to do them. I agree with you. And also you have no way of knowing how, as you said earlier, how you're going to affect someone. I mean, there was a couple of people in our group who, as I said, we don't have a huge art tradition in in, in, um, in Ireland. Um, and we certainly didn't have that very playful, uh, not taking yourself seriously uh, art tradition, where we do find that within the urban sketching group, which is just the best thing about it. People just do not take it too seriously. They don't take themselves too seriously. I mean, you know, the people who follow me online, I was just saying to my husband this morning, I have the nicest, most laid back people who are so quick to laugh and see the humor in things. And I think that's very indicative of urban sketches as a whole. We really are a tribe of uh, like-minded people who um, are just, I think that's why our, our gatherings are supposedly are such great fun because we're just a very, very upburst, jolly good humored bunch you know yeah yeah i love i love the diversity we see in the group there are so many people who are professional artists and professional say architects who we could say have an ancillary interest in urban art and urban sketches 
But what really fascinates me are people who don't have, so to say, in any business being here. They don't, other than the joy that they get, it's clear that they are there, they are urban sketchers, they're adults with responsibilities and jobs, but they are giving this their leisure time. And that is the most precious resource of all. It doesn't ask for anything. You can have a pen and any pen and any piece of paper and you can be an urban sketcher. But what you still have to give is your time. And that is such a precious commodity. So when I'm at an urban sketching meetup and I see the diversity of people, age, ethnicities, demographics, professions, education, it's the most heartening part of it is that they're all here because they really want to do this thing. Mm -hmm. It's so true. It's so true. You can have every walk of life and you can have people who are down their luck and joining in because they're so you know having a bad time or you can have people who I don't know it could be any amount of reasons but they're all there because the act of pulling that pen across the paper makes them feel calm um and that's it we just get calm um it's it's a huge gift that we're able to give ourselves and to give to others and since the pandemic has started and I've been doing a lot of teaching um and I always as we talked earlier I I I very much encourage urban sketching I there's not supposed to be any drawings from photographs in my group although they do sneak in but they're not allowed and it's really hard to convince people I keep telling them the reasons why and we all know the reasons why but they keep snaking them in um but um I'm always trying to encourage them because it brought me joy it fixed my brain which was a little bit messed up it fixed it and um you know it's good to sound impossibly smug but I have a serenity now not that my family would agree with 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 what I'm saying but I have a serenity that I could only have 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 dreamt about I mean my personality hasn't changed I still have a propensity to uh, melancholy but nothing like before I discovered urban sketching I go along with a spring in my step and a song in my heart because there's something beautiful either to be drawn or to be just enjoyed with my eyes I live in a world of beauty now and I'm, that I've become so conscious of because of drawing, because of those quiet, long moments, usually freezing my bum off. I absolutely agree. And being a similarly minded person myself, it's just this, this focus that it allows me to, it allows me to stay in this moment that I'm in. And I appreciate that so much. And how you mentioned about discovering beauty, it's like we're always now on the lookout for, and we have this belief and it's strongly founded belief that it could be right around the corner. It could be anything. It could be anything. a bit, it could be an empty cigarette packet put on the, left by somebody on the side of the street. It could be a lamppost. I brought these pins of tomatoes down from the shop down to my studio the other day because they look cute. I had to buy the two. The chopped version is nice and the not chopped version is nice. And they look so nice side by side. I'm just two tins of chopped tomatoes. But, you know, it, it was the joy in making those shapes. I got to use all my different colored ink for the tomatoes and the leaves. <laughs> so, you know, it was just something so simple. It could be anything at all. And that's the joy that we have been given, that we give to ourselves. Just the, it's just the action, isn't it? The action of drawing. Um, the subject is just so unimportant. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, tell me now with, with COVID and the restrictions brought by the pandemic, have you had to recalibrate 
the kind of things you draw, the way that you draw. Have you had to make changes in this uh, behavior? I, I, I wouldn't say the way I draw, but certainly the subject. I mean, I had to cancel my workshop. That was the first thing. Um, I had a couple lined up for last year. I have a couple lined up for this year and I don't know if they're going to happen. But when I discovered that we had to draw, we had to stay within five kilometers. First of all, it was two kilometers. Then it was five kilometers. And I'm lucky enough to live in a very beautiful countryside. And I'm lucky enough to share a house with a family. So I filled sketchbook after sketchbook of drawings of my children cooking, my children learning cross-stitch because they did all the things that people do in pandemic. They learned to embroider and they learned to cook and they learned to, I don't know what. And then I went with my children on cycle rides and I encouraged them to bring their sketching stuff. So we would draw together. We would climb over walls and go to a field and just draw a tree. And they are some of the most precious memories I have of time with my teenage children. And it was a beautiful time. I also wrote a blog every day for the first, I'd say, three months. And that gave me a great focus because it was a little bit distracting knowing that my living had disappeared overnight. My, my, my workshop, I had to refund, I don't know, many thousands. So what was I going to do? I mean, you can panic or you can do something about it. So I drew, I blogged, that gave me a focus for every day. And then I moved online and I began to teach in March last year. And then I began to teach in May to the wider worldwide community. So that has changed everything. That has changed everything. My whole existence. I, I no longer wonder what I'm going to do because there's always a beautiful something to take for my students, to show them a method, to remind them that it springs somewhere else. Um, it's, it's wonderful. I'm, I'm hugely honored by my students who come to my classes. We have a very special relationship. Um, they are my special, they're my special people and I'm, I'm extremely grateful and honored. You must have had to figure out how to do these workshops now when, now that we're doing everything virtually and of course our primary interest being drawing from observation, having to change that and tweak that in some ways. So how was, how was that? Like, how was it to think about how you're going to educate them now that yeah. so much of the traditional means are lost? Well, it's quite simple, Ashant. I... Uh, I have no problem with talking. <laughs> so um, I would describe what it was like to land at the place where I was, where I had produced the drawing. I would discuss all the practical things that might put someone off and how I would get around them. Um, something so simple as if you're somewhere where, if you're in a town and it's cold, just remember there's a coffee shop not very far away. Stop what you're doing. Go and get warm. Go and have a cup of coffee. Draw your coffee while you're getting warm. If, you, if your hands can still move and then go back out when you're nice and warm again. So little tiny practical things about clothes to wear. Then I would talk to them about the materials. And then when it came to the actual nuts and bolts of drawing, I would tell them all the things that make my drawings work. Like, for example, the little uh, technical things like measuring by eye, like mapping a drawing starting in the middle and working around bigger and bigger or like timing with your watercolor paint, how to, how to recognize the exact moment when it's time for the next layer. So it was, they're very, very technical. So I cannot, I cannot make them have the experience of sitting in front of the 
the spring flowers that I had last week. But I can show them how to keep their purple super clean, how to stop it running into the yellow, how to get the difference between the crocuses and the daffodils, even though they're both yellow, how to get the shadows on the white crocus without making it look like it's blue, how to do a very complex pattern on the pots, which by the way, you just paint first, do pet afterwards, brilliant technique. Um, I can show them all those things and then they draw them and then they share them. I started a Facebook group for the, for the students and they share them if they want to in the group. And if they ask, they have to specifically ask for critique because if they don't ask, I don't, I don't want to step on anyone's toes. So if they ask, I will tell them your ellipse isn't right at the bottom, or you need to take up your color a bit darker right next to the edge so that it pops. And so simple little things like that. And then now I'm beginning to get messages saying, I can't believe I drew people and painted them. I would never have attempted people, never mind skin tones, but now I know what color mixes to use. And now I know about leaving half the face white or the highlights across the face. So all I'm doing is giving them tools to observe. That's all I'm doing and how to get over the problems that they're going to encounter. The problems that I had, um, and they're all drawing directly in pen. They don't, nobody ever draws in pencil first. So I told them that even though, oh, and I tell them what to do when they make mistakes. I, I, I show them physically how you can draw two ears or on a person's side of their face and the wrong nose. But if you just ignore it and draw the line in the right place, like you were talking about earlier, it's fine. Nobody's going to notice. The brain only sees what it understands and perceives to be correct anyway. We don't have to worry about mistakes. And by taking away their worry about mistakes, it increases their confidence. And what does confidence do? It makes their voice come out. Right. I, I completely agree. It's such a, such a nice way to summarize this. Like you are helping them overcome firstly, the biggest obstacle, which is their own hesitation and their own lack of confidence. Once you give people that confidence that mistakes don't matter, the line doesn't have to be what you are currently thinking in your head. It needs to be. And mistakes are overrated, frankly. Once you have that confidence, suddenly people are already doing their best work beyond what they would have thought they would have done. They can't believe it. They're just, yeah. Yeah. And more than so much else, the ability to know how to identify little problem areas and how to have solutions for those problem areas. Often that's what like, so like we were talking about how even you have uh, difficulty painting a sunset, for example, it's just about some kind of technique, right? Like what you mentioned about the street, that's exactly what occurred to me after going over it many times first with the ink and then adding the color to it that why don't I add the color first and then my lines can do whatever as long as they make sense together nobody will care if they are exactly like something else that they needed to be really what it's about is that you can make all the mistakes you want they just have to make sense together in that piece because a drawing is like this universe that you're making for somebody and they'll accept it for whatever it is. They'll accept that people have legs that are longer than they should be or fingers are not looking right. As long as everything is consistent within that world, it kind of makes sense. So it's, it's lovely that you're teaching them and you're equipping them to get over these, these little hurdles that come in the way, that discourage you, that just stop you from becoming the kind of artist that you can be. Yes, I mean, I suppose, like you said, the, the, the big one is uh, self-belief and confidence. And I, I regard it as very much my privilege to help their voice come out because to, to encourage 
um, you know, the, the little butterfly, I suppose it's such a cliche, but the butterfly that's waiting to come out, to be able to open up that, that uh, pupa or whatever it's called, a chrysalis and to, to let them fly. I mean, that, what incredible thing to be able to do. And I, I'm always very slow to be too prescriptive. And it, if, because I taught children for a very long time, children are very, it's very obvious what style they have. They haven't learned to hide it and they certainly aren't conscious of a style or not having a style. They just draw. Um, and I, I noticed very quickly within a few minutes of a new child coming into my class, whether they want to draw everything in big black lines, whether they want to be super sensitive, whether they're very playful, whether they're very serious. Uh, there's all these different shades of who this child is very naturally. And I always make sure to encourage that particular way. I don't tell them, no, 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 not like that. Like, I don't want them to be like me. So, so many times, even though my students are copying exactly my drawing, I'm always trying to tell them, I, I'm not encouraging you to be like me. I want you to be like you. So, um, all I want to do is give them technical solutions. And I know that my technical solutions are my technical solutions. Uh, so there is always that danger. And I tell them, look guys, you know, this is just the way I do it. I totally accept it's not the only way. I also show them very close to the camera all the wrong lines. They can see them in my sketches. They can see all the initial wrong lines and they can see how I've just overcome them by drawing the right line somewhere else in a, in a different thickness of pen. You never notice the wrong lines in my drawings. Yeah. Yeah. Or you just, you learn how to disguise them. Like as a person yeah. who also draws straight with ink, there's so many people who tell me, oh, it seems like you don't make mistakes. And I want to tell them that I make so many mistakes. I just hide them all and you don't know where to find no, them. No, there's always, and, and I've got a, I've got an even better trick because I don't, do you put much in the way of color or not so much? Not of late, no. Okay. So with color, you know, suddenly you've got a dark background behind a guy. Wow. Where's my mistakes? You know, they're paints gray they're gone <laughs> yeah 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 exactly i i just ink it solid and then it's, there you gone. Go. it's not... gone gone and 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 also my my students always know that we have our you know special white gel pen especially when we're drawing people because they always say i can't draw people i can't draw people and i say that's because we know people's faces and what they're supposed to look like so well any tiny mistake is very off-putting so that's where your white gel pen comes in you just whip it out and get rid of a line and paper stow, your person doesn't look completely weird anymore. That's such a nice distinction you made there. Two points, actually. The first I want, before I forget, is that it seems like teaching an adult, you first have to teach them to be children again. And then you can teach them how to do things and then they just do their thing. The way you describe that children are not aware of style mm -hmm. and they're not aware of you know, it's the the naivety again that you don't know about the different ways you could go, quote unquote, wrong. Yeah. You just do things. And that's what the biggest trouble with being an adult is that you're so aware of mistakes and wrong things that you're afraid of taking that first step. So you have to kind of take them back to that childlike feeling. Do you know what I, the way I do it is, they're the only students, the only type of students who I can't teach, and there are not many, is the one who just won't believe that they can do it. And I try and I try, and sometimes they just won't believe. So that, that's definitely a category. The other category are people who have identified as artists for a very long time, and they are just not changing. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. I don't know why they come to my class, but, you know, that's fine. So what the, the most important thing I have to do is get them to trust me. 
if they trust me, if they trust that I can make their drawings, if they trust that I can make them into an amazing drawer, then they trust me. And the way they trust me is we get to know each other. And I'm very open in my social media posts. I talk very personally. So, and I don't hide stuff. I talk about, you know, disappointments, me being a petty, jealous person, which is very sad. And I'm working on it. I really am. But um, <laughs> I really am. But, um, you know, we all have our faiths. But, you know, if, if, you, if you admit, we all have, we all have failings. We all are a bit crap, you know, sometimes. You just have to admit it, be open. And then if they, if they, if they empathize with you as another human, that gets them, then they trust you. And if they see your work that blows them away, two reasons to trust you. A, I like you. B, I like your work. And, you know, I'm going to give it a try. It doesn't cost very much. I'm going to come to class. Sometimes I do free ones just to, to give people a, a chance to see what it's like. And, and they go, oh my God, oh my God, this is amazing. I actually can do this. And that is such privilege for me when I realize that I can give them not give them I can help them find their own constant space and what a gift to give I mean it's I'm I walk on air all the time because it's such a privilege and as somebody who uh, also likes to draw people speaking to another like I loved what you said about the difficulty people have with drawing people is that they're too intimately aware of every dimension and that that brings us to this difference right that um when you're trying to see something and draw it, if you're a little too conscious of the ways it should look like, you're not really able to represent it. And sometimes I speak uh, on this subject with some other sketchers as well about how we need to see without recognizing almost or just be able to separate the lines and the shapes from the object as we recognize it. That's a really good point. I, I was only talking about that in class today with, with, with the students. Um, I, I draw my kids. I draw my kids a lot. And I know what my kids look like. They're my children. I look at them every day. I know every single little valley and peak and trough of their face. I know their eyelashes and everything. And yet I make mistakes with them all the time. So I have to separate that very close relationship with this is my child. This is my Livy. This is my Paddy, my honor. I have to separate that to a collection of planes and shadows. And I have to make that separation and I have to make that separation every time I draw anything. It's just that it's much more important when I draw people, because if you make any mistake, when you draw people's face, they're no longer re recognizable. You make a mistake with a building. So I've got one window too many. Nobody cares. If I do an extra eye on the person. They're going to care. Or if I draw that nose, just a teeny bit too big, they're going to get annoyed. Or a woman will say, um, You've made me fair. Well, they don't anymore, but in their early days, they'd say, can you, can you cut off a few pounds? You've made me, you've made, can you get rid of my lines of sorrow? Or you've given me a very big nose, things like that. And you'd be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm not that good. I'm doing my best. But I, I eventually realized, okay, just don't worry about it. Just make it recognizably human and be content with that. If you want to go further than that, then yes, you have to put on your thinking cap. You have to squint up those eyes and see all the, the areas of dark and light. You have to break it down. You have to be on your A game and you have to get your shape right, your lines right, your distances exactly spot on, which is where the copying comes in because that's your training. That's the only training I have. And then hopefully you'll be able to be honest, look honestly, observe well and draw faithfully. But it does take that thinking cap. When it comes to humans, 
definitely, especially your loved ones, your nearest and dearest. Yeah, yeah, so true. Uh, Roshin, you've also made a couple of different types of books and that aspect really fascinates me. I'm always curious about the way that artists and urban sketchers are communicating their art. And uh, one of them is about Galway. And your second book, or maybe I, I'm not sure about the order, but the other book here that I'm referring to is the handbook you made of urban sketching, and that's about drawing people. So I see two fundamental, uh, a fundamental difference between these two books. One of them is about a place and then your representation of it. And I assume if you've got some words in it, then also those words, the stories and the context to your art. Whereas the other one is about, is different, is differently pitched. It's to a different kind of audience. What is it like for you to make uh, these two very, very different books? But of course, they both comprise the kind of art you like. The Sum of it is purely the art you make. Well, it's a very good question. Um, I never heard it put so clearly, actually. Um, my Goalie book was my first published book and my Join Expressive People was my second. Um, I actually wrote my book, my first book after Mauritius. And it's the exact same as the Goy book. It's just set in Mauritius. It's just a collection of sketches and stories that go with it. What happened when I was out there? I I had to make a decision with the Goy book. I had to make it one or the other. It has to have a theme and a point. And it was not an an instruction book. Um, I tried to be a bit, bit evangelistic in the introduction. Come on, be an urban sketcher. You'll be really happy. But other than that... I didn't tell anybody at all about the quality of the line or what tools to use, nothing like that. And that was very conscious. It was not meant for artists. It was meant for anybody who wants to learn about a town through pictures and stories. Whether they could draw or not was immaterial. The second book was very different. It was, as you say, a guidebook. And that was not a trip down my life as a mom who draws her kids the whole time because Nearly everybody in the book is my family because who else am I going to draw? (laughs) I mean, I can't get out. So there were a lot of drawings from before the pandemic um, of strangers. But for the most part, my drawings are my family because that's who I see. And I did, I did at one point wonder, am I comfortable with putting my family, my, my babies, my babies into this book that the whole world will see? And then I thought, you know what? We all have people we care about. Share that. Share that. That's the joy of drawing people that you care about. That was obviously the practical reason, which is that I didn't have anybody else. But what I wanted to do with that book was, well, it was commissioned by Quarto. So the idea didn't come from me. It came from them. So I didn't have to wonder about what to, what to, what to portray. But my aim with that book, I knew that I would, I would not be able to tell everyone how to draw a human in one little book. I don't think I could do it in a long book either. But I knew that there was a chance I could inspire. And if I could inspire people to go out and draw their loved ones or anybody in the street, then they would get really good because of what we talked about earlier, the practice, the practice, the practice, the practice, all the things you pick up along the way. And I knew that that is the way to learn. And you can say that all you like, but if you can inspire someone to go and do it, then your job is it's pretty okay. You've, you've done a good job. So I hope, I hope, I hope I've, I've managed to do that. Um, so yeah, that's, it wasn't, it, so to answer your question in a much quicker way, it wasn't, it wasn't an issue. They, I just had to stick to one thing. You have to find out, what do you want to say with this book? I want to tell you about Galway. 
in words and pictures. What do you want to say with this book? I want to give you some tips for drawing people. That's it. So, and it's a good advice to take myself because I have a couple of more books along the way and I have to remember, keep to the, stick to the theme, stick to the theme. Don't be all over the place. Yeah. What, what are the other books about? Well, after the Goalie book came out, um, it was, it was, it was very successful. Um, and my, I was quickly commissioned to write another, um, my publisher and I decided that a book about Dublin would be a no brainer. So I spent the last year before the pandemic from September to about March, I got the bus up to Dublin every week, stayed with my wonderful brother who lives in Dublin city center. And I went around the place drawing Dublin and, um, that stopped dead in its tracks in March. And I missed the deadline for that year. And I, I don't even, I don't even know if I'll make the deadline for this year, to be honest. So that's the same as the Galway book, except it's a traveler, not someone who lives in Galway. That's such an interesting distinction, though. Uh, you being intimately knowledgeable about Galway, but then uh, so that's the, you're you're showing your home in a way. But in Dublin, you are a visitor as well, or and a tourist in some respect. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. Um, and I was, I it was suggested to me, suggested to me at one stage by uh, someone connected with um, the publisher that um, I would not want to show the bad side of Dublin. And I said, I'm sorry, I would have no integrity uh, as a writer if, if I didn't write what I saw as faithfully as I possibly could. So there's going to be a lot of conversations with homeless guys. <laughs> there's a lot it of conversations sense. with homeless guys, yeah. I mean, it's, if you're going to be, it's, it's not that you are showing all of Dublin, you're showing the you're showing Dublin from your eyes so you have to be honest to your vision and the thing so if somebody was not a people sketcher if somebody sketched only cityscapes and only buildings and architecture I would understand them not having such elements in their book but since your stories and your narrative and your art is so centered around the people who live in different circumstances in different places yeah it it feels like your natural curiosity would bring you to it well, it's not just, it's not just the natural curiosity, sorry to interrupt you. It's the fact that I'm, I can't leave. <laughs> I'm sitting on my stool. I'm trying to get something done before it starts to rain. And those guys aren't going anywhere. So <laughs> I don't have a choice, but to, but it's, it's quite heartbreaking because nearly every single one of them says to me, and they're very rough guys. They've, you know, they're very rough guys. They've had a hard, hard time and they're all very young as well. And um, they say to me, uh, in Ireland, we have the leaving cert, which is like your, 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 your A-levels. And then we have the junior cert, which is more like 15, 16 years old. And you don't have to stay on a school like after you're 15, 16, that's called the junior cert. Um, so none of these guys have stayed on to their leaving cert. And they all say to me, do you know what he got? This is me double Do you know what he got? He got an A in me junior cert in art. So they've all done really well in art at school. I loved art when I was at school. I loved it. And I was really good at it. And that seems to be something that comes up so many times. I was really good at art. And one of them said to me once, he said, do you know what I'd love to draw? Gary would draw for me sometime. Like a gorgeous cottage. And like a sea, some mountain. And a beautiful beach. And I could see he was in his mind. He was looking at this cottage on a beach. And the mountains and I thought oh god love you that's not the life you have that's, uh -huh. you know it was so sad so sad so you know they're lonely guys 
and I, as I say, I can't leave. <laughs> well, I feel like it's such a beautiful thing if you were able to represent this story or such conversations in your book. It would add so much dimension to it, and you know, uh, the the way I sometimes wonder how people deal with these things. So I grew up in India, and there's a lot of poverty in India, but you expect there to be a lot of poverty in India. And the first time I came to uh, the US and I came via the Netherlands and in the Netherlands you see an idyllic, almost everything working perfectly kind of world. And I came to the US and I expected it to be similar, but no, the US also has incredible inequalities and poverty and people suffering. And that jarred me more than my growing up did because I saw it in a place where I didn't expect to see it. And I would think about how people make peace with these things. How do, how does somebody walk past something like this, knowing that there is so much wealth, knowing that there is so much, uh, so many resources available here, but there is also such stark and terrible deprivation, and a lot of it has to do with being able to dehumanize it in some way. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So stories like these, being able to have even just a very regular conversation about. What would they want to draw? What kind of art they would want to make? It humanizes them again. Yeah, and and they never ask me for money. They 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 sometimes ask me for money. They sometimes the conversation ends and they go away, and then they might come back and they say, "Oh, uh, I'm sorry, this is really embarrassing, but you wouldn't have uh, two euro, would you?" And um, because I'm naturally very cheap, tight person, I I would never have the money in my pocket. So I made a mental note. Have a pocket for the guys. Just have a pocket of change for the guys. You don't have to give them much, but they appreciate it. Um, one time, one of them said to me, uh, he said, uh, would you draw Would you draw me the next time you're, you're here? I just live over there. See that corner over there? That's where, that's where I sleep. Sleeping bag under it. But that was his place. That was his place. Oh, the next time you're back, would you just, oh, just draw me? He was quite rough. Spiky red hair. He was the one guy I was hoping would not come and talk to me, but of course he did. But um, and I said to my brother afterwards, I said, "Why didn't I just draw him? Quick picture." And Maliki said, "My brother, he said, look, he would have had it sold for heroin in, in in fifteen minutes." But that's not my choice. That's his choice. I if I were to give something, sure, I might make his life worse. But nobody tells me don't don't buy that extra bottle of wine. Stop eating that chocolate. Nobody tells me. That's how I feel about it too. That you know, uh, I can't imagine my life in those circumstances. Like I cannot personally imagine how I would spend even one night or another the day after that and another. Like how would I do it? So I am really not in the position to question financial decisions. And as we see, our world is run by people with immense amounts of wealth who make the most ridiculous and questionable financial decisions. So I don't think it's the it's the purview of only unfortunate people that they make wrong financial decisions or they make poor financial decisions. Very well pushed. Yeah, I've, I've never really thought about that. And I've made the most ridiculous financial decisions, but they just didn't come back to bite me, you know, because I have that cushion. Um, you know, don't deserve it, but have it. So, yeah, no, I mean, also, I'm very grateful to the guys because I am a visitor. I don't have any stories of living there. They're all a long time ago. I lived there, what, 30 years ago. So um, I don't have any stories. So I'm very grateful to the guy. Without them, I don't have anything to write. <laughs> yeah, there's there's some color in your book now that people couldn't, they couldn't get it from any 
brochure about Dublin or they couldn't get it from just Google. Nobody would Google it. Exactly. And no one's going to talk to them because, I mean, I wouldn't talk to them if I wasn't stuck in my little chair trying to draw. So uh, I would go, but I can't go. So I have to just make the best of it. And I, I talk to them. And to, to be honest with you, when you've got a sense of humor, it's usually fine. You know, sometimes you could end up having a bit of a laugh and, you know, that's kind of nice too. And I do feel like if any other form of art practice would not be, would not lead to such conversation. Like if you were a photographer, I don't see anybody having a conversation, no matter where you are and how you draw, just the act that you're doing this is something that is deeply appreciated by people. And it brings out a very natural curiosity and they they approach you as they, like a lot of that guard goes down, which wouldn't otherwise. Yeah. I think they remember what it was like to be a child who loved art. And I think, I think many of us urban sketchers are familiar with the person who says after a while, I used to love art when I was a child, uh, but then I stopped. I don't know why I stopped. Or they'll say, um, I used to love art, but I, my teacher told me to stand outside the classroom because I was so bad or something, you know, that some reason they stopped. But when they see you drawing without any thought or rationale behind it, they just remember being a kid and loving art. Um, and like that, the children who stand and watch us, my God, they can stand still for an hour just looking over your shoulder. And they go into this beautiful trance that we as sketchers know about. And the parents will sometimes take advantage of this and say, I'm going to leave him here. Do you mind while I go and do the visit? I go, fine, no problem. I'm here for ages anyway. Um, <laughs> So it's a win-win for everyone. The kid, the kid gets inspired. I mean, I've had so many parents say, you don't realize my kid has not stopped drawing since they saw you. Um, and that's such a privilege. My goodness, what a gift we have that we can, we can share. There's room for everybody. There's drawing us for everybody. And we can share it with the whole world. How beautiful is that? I, I absolutely agree. Thank you so much, Roisin. This has been a really enlightening and education educative conversation for me because like we talked about the technicalities of how to teach how to learn and i've learned things from listening to your perspective on that as well and so much of the like like we mentioned uh like so much you learn from just having the similar kind of experience you don't even have to have a completely unique experience or hear about something that's never happened to you but to hear about something that has happened to me as well and to see that that has happened to others, it's almost more helpful because it helps me to validate those experiences. Well, I think you're, I think you're very well placed to, um, to talk to sketchers because you have a very keen insight um, and you're, you have very uh, clear observational abilities. Um, you seem to get to the heart of things really, really quickly and clearly. Like when you were talking about uh, how do you approach a book, for example, that was something I'd never thought about before. Um, how do you pass on what it's like to be an urban sketcher in front of a scene, even though you're actually only in front of a computer between you and your people? That, you know, that's something I've thought about, but you put it very clearly and very succinctly. So, you know, I think it's fantastic what you're doing, and especially the fact that you're bringing it to the world through words even though it's all about drawing. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, well done, it's fantastic. And, and I'm hugely honored that you, that you asked me to come along.